Welcome back to Black Diplomats Podcast and greetings from Tashkent, Uzbekistan. I just landed here a few hours ago and right now it is 4.55 a.m. on a Friday and I'm staying up just taping this show, make sure I get it out to you in time for the weekend. I'm here in Uzbekistan doing some research and I'm here on a few uh, business projects. But anyway, I just wanted to... uh, acknowledge that I've been away for a few months. I've been taking care of some personal stuff and recalibrating the show's format a bit. And boy, do I have a lot in store for you. At the end of this month, we will start my Iran series called Iran in Context, in which I profile Iranian experts in history, politics, music, and other areas who will explain what America gets wrong about Iran and how we as citizens can better understand this nation of 80 plus million people. The series will run from the end of December until February. Stay tuned. On today's show, we will hear from Alexa Kellogg-Kermanova. She is a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley's Department of Anthropology, where she's studying feminism, race, and gender in Central Asia, with a focus on Kyrgyzstan. It's also a place where she spent some time researching the subject that she's going to be talking to us about today, and where she met her partner, a trans Kyrgyz man. A black queer woman born and raised in Chicago and Atlanta, Alexa is one of the most dynamic people I have ever met studying Russian and who works in Central Asia. I first met Alexa at the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasia Studies Conference in New Orleans a few weeks ago and got a chance to spend some time with her and I can definitely say she is officially my homegirl right now. And this conversation, I'm just really eager for you to listen to it. So let's jump right into uh, that edited version of what was more than an hour of us having a conversation. And this is part one of that conversation, which I'm going to split into two episodes. Let's get into the show. at the conference and I one of the first things I do is I'm looking for all the Negroes and I saw I saw Alexa I'm like she's a sister and I saw your last name I said okay that Central Asia for sure and I'm trying to like pin you down so I said, let me go talk to her and see, and, you know, just just um, learn a little bit more about her. I mean, because all the black folk, we all know each other. I mean, it's just like mad small. You know what I mean? You know, you've been studying Russian for a long time. You focus on Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan in particular, and you have all these intersections. You're a queer black woman. You know, I want to talk about the research that you do. Also, I find it's just so dope. You know, you found a partner in Kyrgyzstan, um, you know, who is a trans uh, man from the region, right? I just find that so fascinating. But we'll talk all about this. But first, just tell me, and I and listen, people ask me the same question. How does a sister from Chicago get into studying Russian? I just want to talk about your background and 
and when you first started studying the language. We'll just go there. So, yeah, um, I first started studying actually before 2007. So <laughs> this is like 2006. I started studying. Uh, I was like 14, 14, 15 around there. Um, but this was purely for religious reasons because I was formerly a Jehovah's Witness. Um, so it had, you know, kind of this religious vibe to it. And you know how they have their different congregations um, and they're speaking different languages and trying to reach out to different people. So I decided to join the Russian congregation. So it's kind of funny because like my Russian and like when I'm speaking religiously is actually really good because of that. <laughs> um, and I was just preaching to all these different people like and I, I think this was when I, it started to, uh, for me, for I was starting to realize that like the Soviet Union was this really plural place, right? Like of, they, they're they not just all white, right? Um, and so I I just met so many different people. I, I met people who were Pravoslavni. I met people who were Muslim, right? Um, coming from that region. Um, Definitely had some back and forth with Pidisiatniki, which would be Pentecostals. Um, but yeah, that's how I first started learning Russian. And I was not only learning it like through books, right? But also through conversation, but mostly religious conversations. And so this is like the, the beginning of my journey and to where I am now. And so in 2007, right before 2008, I went to Brighton Beach on kind of this domestic missionary uh, trip. And I get there and my roommate is this Ukrainian woman who actually didn't speak any English. So I was kind of like forced, you know, to learn very quickly or at least to be able to communicate with her. So I'm living in Brighton Beach, trying to preach to these babushki, these grandmas, and little did I know they were teaching me tons of things, right? We would have conversations, and of course I was there to preach to them, right? But then they would bring up race, or they would bring up Paul Robinson, right? And I was finding these connections with them through conversations about, more specifically about like black culture um, and, what they perceived as black culture and how they deemed or saw the Soviet Union as, you know, this place that was raceless. Um, and that really took me for a spin. Like, why are these women so interested in talking to me about race, right? So I learned a lot from them, actually, and from those experiences. And that's where the broader questions of my projects come into play, from those experiences and talking to those people about it. How old were you when you went to Brighton Beach? I, I I had just graduated from high school. So instead of going to my high school graduation, I was on a plane to, <laughs> to New York City. Um, and so I was there for a while. Um, I couldn't stay there for very long because the prices of living is like crazy. Like the, the apartment that I was renting, um, 
with this woman, I actually, it was like a one bedroom, right? And she had one bedroom and then there was the kitchen. There was not even, there's no living room. I mean, you know how like New York apartments are. There was no living room, just that one bedroom, the kitchen. And I slept in the kitchen and I swear every time she made like borscht, like seriously in the kitchen in the summertime, I was like burning up because she'd been cooking all day and I get back and then, you know, we're going to sleep and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's already so hot and outside. And now it's like double that <laughs> in here. So yeah, that didn't, that was not sustainable. And I ended up coming back to Atlanta actually. So I, I went from Chicago to Atlanta, to New York, back to Atlanta. Um, and my my experiences with the Russian language continued, right? Um, I was still a part of that religion, so I was still trying to, you know, preach to these people, right? And and I was going to at that point like nursing homes or um, old people homes, assisted living homes, and stuff like that in the area because there had been an influx actually of. Um, refugees as well um, that were living there from the Caucasus. And honestly, the experiences that I've had with each and every one have been like each and every person have been very different. Like going into or talking to someone who is Muslim is completely different uh, than talking to someone who is P.D. Satniki, who's Pentecostal, right? I think a lot of it was it was so interesting because, you know, I I'm in the discipline of anthropology. And I was sitting there kind of already doing that kind of thing where you sit and you listen to someone's story, right? Um, and yeah, I just feel like it was, maybe I didn't know it at the time, but like it was kind of this human engagement that I'm participating in now. Um, and I, f I feel that they are kind of the same thing, right? Um, in a lot of ways, um, but just, there were so many things that people just felt comfortable telling me. I had one lady who was from Armenia. She had survived the earthquake and she told me about like her grandson who didn't survive the earthquake, right? So there were a lot of things like that where I felt like, I, I don't know that a person would normally open up about that. I don't know, maybe they would, but it seems like really personal stories about that, um, those types of things or about actually being in the gulag. Pidisiatniki, of course, Pentecostals, would talk about that. Like I had um, one older lady, and keep in mind, like usually it was older people. It was never like really young. They were like in their 60s or 70s. And they were talking about these experiences, but I didn't have the context, right, to actually even understand that at that time. But now I do, which is so awkward to me, you know, because I'm like, wow, this is what they were talking about. Like I, you know, and I was just like, oh, OK. And I just listened. But I didn't really understand. Like, wow, you were actually like you were in a, in a gulag, right? Or you were being persecuted or oppressed in this way. Um, and, you know, their kids, of course, because they would be living with their kids sometimes. Their kids, of course, were happy to like kind of push them off on me and like <laughs> for a couple of hours. Right. But yeah, these those experiences, like I said, like really inform my interests today in the region and just being able to, I think, also debunk like stereotypes of what Russia, of what Eastern Europe, of what. Soviet 
of what the Soviet Union is or was, right? Um, because if you're just like an American kid growing up on Rocky and Bullwinkle, you think Boris and Natasha are like, <laughs> right? <laughs> the Soviet Union. So that's like, that was my reference for that. It was like Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Like, and that's all I knew of it, right? And so it, the, those experiences and even the experiences more specifically talking about blackness and engaging with race were very pivotal moments for me. Um, and seeing that, oh my goodness, these people are like really interested, like more interested than like white Americans <laughs> and, and more interested in white, than white Americans in these questions of race. Um, and well, at least in talking about like anti-racism and, you know, like anti-racism, I think in the West right now is like, a, it's a trend, right? <laughs> Let's just say it's a trend. People... It's a buzzword or whatever, but these things were already like at least trying to be implemented in the USSR, right? And these older people were talking about it, you know, and this was 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, right? That I was having these experiences. When they were talking about race and Paul Robeson specifically, tell me about those conversations. Where were you? Did they start in Chicago? Did they start in Brighton Beach, for example? Well, those conversations started in Brighton Beach. So those conversations were mostly about his singing, actually. Um, and there's, I mean, there's documentation of him singing there and, you know. So, yeah, that was mostly what it was about. Um, how, do you know who Paul Robinson is? And of course, the only reason I know who Paul Robinson is really is like, my mom like my mom is the reason because she sat me down and made me watch all those like old black and white movies and you know her favorite one of her favorite movies is showboat which paul robinson is in right <laughs> so so i was like yes i know who this is um and they're like yeah we he was there we loved him like he's a big thing like all this stuff and another person who would come up of course is langston hughes right Everyone knows who Langston Hughes is and, oh, he came to the USSR and he's great. Um, but then it would it, it would actually it would move from Paul Robinson to Langston Hughes. And then more specifically, actually outside of Brighton Beach. Right. When you I think when I got into Russia, it was more about Pushkin. Right. And his blackness. Um, and hey, do you know? Do you know our greatest poet is like black as well? You know, he's half black or whatever. And it would be, I felt like a way of connecting with me. I think in both of those situations, right? Paul Robinson was something that we shared in common. And it wasn't just him, but it was like blackness as well, right? It, it was like, okay, yeah, I know what this thing is. Um, and kind of wanting to show or interested in sh being inter interested in showing that they are knowledgeable about blackness as well. Um, even though it, it may manifest itself differently. <laughs> it's fascinating how you start started with the language via being a Jehovah's Witness because you didn't mention learning the language in school. What was it like going to these Jehovah Witnesses meetings, learning the language uh, outside of school versus 
doing everything else in school because it's the it's because it, because again it's this it's it's not Spanish, it's not French, right? It's it's kind of funny because I'm like thinking back now and I'm like oh god trauma from high school, <laughs> right? And just thinking like people thought like I. Other kids at my school, first of all, I was already weird because I was a Jehovah's Witness, right? I don't celebrate holidays. Like, you know, I'm not going to prom, right? You're not going to dances and stuff like that. Um, and then on top of that, they would see me studying the Russian language through the watchtowers and awakes because they're also in that language, right? And in, that's who my my audience is, right? I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with the Russian community. So the Watchtower and Awake were also in Russian. And, you know, at the meetings you give comments. So I was giving comments in Russian from this the Watchtower studies. But when I think about it in hindsight, Russian wasn't available at my high school, right? It, I mean, I went to, to high school. At that point, I was going to high school in Lilburn, Georgia, right? And that's 30 minutes outside of Atlanta, predominantly white, right? They had... German, French, and Latin. I took Latin for some god-awful reason. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I just, you know, I was like, oh, the SAT. Fuck that test. It's ridiculous. I was learning Russian instead, of course, but not formally. So that didn't happen until I got to college, right, in the University of Pittsburgh. And I kind of had to relearn some stuff because I took like a break, a hiatus after I left uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses organization. Yeah, I just kind of I was trying to detach myself a little bit from that like experience um, because it was it was oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, as someone who is queer, being in a religion like that, that, you know, says that God is not down with the queers, right, is oppressive. Um, and so trying to detach myself from that, I took a hiatus. Um, but of course, you know, when you do that with language, it's not all gone, right? It's in, it's in there somewhere floating around. <laughs> so when I get to the University of Pittsburgh, I become kind of interested again in Russian. But it wasn't, I didn't actually take like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to take Russian, right, again. It was actually through a Harlem Renaissance class that I took in the English department with, uh, I think her name was Imani Owens. Yeah, Imani Owens. I think she's actually also, like, she's from Brooklyn, actually. But she was teaching at Pitt at the time. And I took her Harlem Renaissance class, and we discussed Langston Hughes at length, right, and in depth. Um and she talked about his experience in the USSR. And I think that was just kind of like, oh my goodness, Alexa, remember? Remember all those conversations you had with those like grandmas? I mean, you know, and I, for some reason connected me back to those experiences that like I actually, at least from the experience that I had with Jehovah's Witnesses, which was, you know, crazy and traumatizing in its own way, those experiences with those women in those, like in their homes, having tea, having cakes, having whatever they wanted to make me because sometimes I wasn't down with what they wanted to make me, but I ate it, you know? <laughs> but yeah, those experiences like just came back, like rushing back, like, oh my goodness, I remember this intimate connection that I had with these women 
talking about their experiences in the USSR. And now it's just kind of reintroducing me back into it, like talking about Langston Hughes, right? Um, so that's when I decided to actually, uh, you know, turn my attention back to Russian um, and to the region and trying to study, you know, and find the context in which I was missing before, right? Um, so then, yeah, I, I think in tandem that year, I was taking a class on Russian terrorism with Sean Gilroy, <laughs> and he said something also about, I, I believe it was about Paul Robinson um, in that class. Um, and that's how I think he was kind of also the motivator for me to turn back to looking at blackness in the region as well, like in that particular time period. So in the 20s and 30s. Um, and, you know, this the case with the Scott Squirrel 9, um, in which, you know, the USSR was heavily involved with, um, along with the NAACP, right? And all these radical uh, black intellectuals. Um, but I was finding, as I was studying that, that there were voices that were missing, right? Um, that black women also had a lot to do with that particular campaign, but it, no one ever you know, talked about it. So I think that's what really spurred my interest as well is like thinking about black women's experiences there instead of just black men's experiences. But at that point, I still hadn't like turned my attention to Central Asia, which is way more interesting to, <laughs> you know, black people traveling to Central Asia. So I find it interesting that as oppressive as you say that the Jehovah's Witness experience was for you, obviously being queer, you found community with these babushkas. And I like to joke, but it's kind of serious. If you you learn a lot through these old babushkas, first of all, they're spies. You know, if you see an old babushka on a bench, she knows everything. And, and the babushka, there's a whole babushka culture regardless of where you go across the former space that was that was known as the USSR, the old babushka on the bench that knows everyone's business. And I, I'm interested in one, in Brighton Beach, where a lot of the people you were speaking to, Yevre or Jewish, because in my experience of going through Brighton Beach, everyone who I spoke to and many of them didn't understand English or could not communicate in English. And they had have spent their entire lives in Brighton Beach and never learned English. They would say, yeah, Yevre, right? I'm I'm Jewish. And I'm I'm curious about that. And were there moments where your queerness ever ever came up? Well, I can answer the thing about the, the queerness first, because at that point, when I was in Brighton Beach, I mean, I'm still Jehovah's Witness at that point. So, like, I I wasn't able to, like, really express my queerness yet. Um, when I left, it was, like, a tidal wave of queerness that was being expressed and all the things I didn't do and wanted to do, right? Um, but at that point, that wasn't really an issue. So for, I think, at least in my experience, um, from being a Jehovah's Witness 
and preaching to Ivre, like it's very difficult, especially in New York, because they're very close knit community, right? Typically, it's not as easy to speak to or preach to. I'm not even gonna say speak because it's preaching. I, I don't even want to say just speaking, right? To preach to Jewish people there. I think most of the time they pretty much just kind of shut you down. Yeah. Um, and even if we're sharing in common this language, right? Even if I'm a black woman coming to their door, they're they're impressed, right? That's cool. But at the same time, like, I think that they're a little bit in it. Like, you can't really access them the way that you can, like, Pentecostals. For, I mean, they kind of want to argue with you about it more, <laughs> which is fine and, and, and dandy. And I'm fine with that. But, like, yeah, um, it, it's very hard because actually even in the Russian congregation I was in, there were some people that were formerly Jewish, and had lost their community, right? And now they're in this other community, which Jehovah's Witnesses are a community of their own, right? Some of them were actually from Uzbekistan um, that were Jewish in that congregation that I was in or from Azerbaijan, right? So that was also an interesting dynamic because even in, within the congregation, you had people that were from the Caucasus, from Central Asia in the congregations, as well as people who were from Russia, uh, Ukraine, all of that. So the congregation actually was an interesting space to be in. But still, at that point, I didn't even understand the context in which they were coming from completely. So I, I missed so many cultural cues, I think. Um, but yeah, as far as like speaking to Jewish people in Brighton Beach, that's very, very difficult. Um, like I said, to even access. Um, Typically, sometimes, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses will stroll down the street and give out <laughs> their tracks because accessing buildings in, in New York City is like not as easy. <laughs> so um, and I, I know what you mean about the the culture of like the babushka, right? Like they're sitting on the benches there and like, you know, have like just and and you try to talk to them. But sometimes they they're, they're going to talk about what they want to talk about. It's, it's not what you want to talk about. And you're just going to listen to it. So that's basically sums up my experience with them and why I actually cherish it. Right. Like, I do love hearing stories. You know, I I love hearing people's experiences. And I think that's why I was just like, yeah, I'm going to sit next to this woman and just let her let her let, let her let me know what's going on. Right. Tell me about your studying Russian at the University of Pittsburgh and how you got into your current research. When I finally went back to school, because I I started late, so I was deemed non-traditional, right? Just because, you know, of my, my background, as far as like being a Jehovah's Witness, you don't, you're not really encouraged to pursue a four-year institution, um, but you're mostly encouraged just to do like something technical and like practical so that you can devote your other time to God. Um, so... <laughs> So, yeah, when I got back, I was like 26, 27. So I started back later, right? Um, but I'm grateful for that because I had a lot of experiences in between. Uh, but, yeah, when I started learning again, it took a while for me to, like, get back into the groove. Because, again, like I said, I took a hiatus 
Um, but, you know, the University of Pittsburgh has a really good Russian program. And I think that the teachers there or the professors there are really supportive. Actually, they were talking about that at the conference. And I think that like like this past uh, week, they were talking about how the classroom is changing. And I think for me, I mean, when I first got there, I was like the only black girl in the classes. Um, and that was, I mean, lonely, right? It was, I and I kind of was shy about my Russian, right? I wasn't very confident. I still am not very confident about my Russian, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, when I got there, I was just like, what am I doing? You know, like it, it wasn't the same feeling as even learning it in the congregation because everyone was very friendly about it. And <laughs> and I was mostly surrounded by native speakers, right? And they're very forgiving, but it's the Americans who aren't as forgiving, the ones who are learning Russian, right? And I, and I yeah, didn't- Yeah, Americans are assholes. I mean, it is an issue. Like it seriously is. And that, I mean, going back to that is like when I was doing like intensive language programs there as well at, at Pitt and abroad, like I don't want to feel like I'm competing. I never felt like that around native speakers that I'm, I, I don't need. I mean, I can't compete with them anyway. Right. <laughs> but like there is this air of like competitiveness. Right. Um, and it just continues to like strip away. I think sometimes out of your confidence um, when speaking. So basically I had to deal with kind of this, kind of these new things of like dealing with being the first, like a first generation college students coming out of a religion that is very like a bubble, right? Um, and, and also just dealing with these new things in the university and kind of feeling isolated in that I'm studying Russian. There's not a lot of black people studying Russian. <laughs> There's not a lot of black people at this university period. It's a PWI. Um, yeah, so it was really hard for me, I think the first couple of years. And I, I don't think that I really expressed that or people could really tell. But sometimes I was like, why am I doing this to myself? But I, maybe it was because I do, like I honestly do with Russian and all of its craziness right I actually do really enjoy learning and speaking Russian and yeah I I kept going I just kept going with it because I was like I already have the the skill I've honed it like you know early on kind of and I, I just want to keep going with it until you know I'm perfect but that's just never gonna happen <laughs> I gotta I have to accept that right I learned Russian at the University of Pittsburgh Pittsburgh. I was doing the the Russian classes there, um, but also I took part in their uh, study abroad. So they had like a hybrid. Well, they have like actually it's called Summer Language Institute where you can do it domestically or you can do a hybrid program where it's like, you know, I think it's like four weeks or something domestically and like four weeks or five weeks, something like that uh, in Moscow at Moscow State. So that I, I did the domestic one first and then I did the hybrid one the next year. <sighs> what can I say about Moscow? <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so Moscow, I feel like, first of all, was my turning point for like really understanding like those, again, former conversations with Babushki, like, 
you know, and how they imagined a raceless space in which I was like, when I'm put in that space, I'm like, ah, this is interesting. I'm maybe not being, uh, maybe there is for me no systemic racism, but there definitely is racism working here, right? And And just for me as a visitor, right? I'm not living there. I'm not like immigrating right there. So it's very different for me. I'm from the West, right? Um, so being in Moscow, I was kind of figuring that out, I think. Um, and I had family members who were like concerned, right? They were like, they don't know anything about Russia. They're like, are you going to be okay? They're racist. Da, 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 da. And I was like, okay. But also here, like walking down the street, like I get profiled and, and stuff like that in America too. Right. Um, and so I, I, I can't, I like, I remember this was during the world cup. Actually, I was there. That was interesting because they had uh, metal detectors to go to the red square at that point as well. And a lot of people, I've had my hair buzzed for a really long time. So like I first cut off my hair when I was like 17. <laughs> um, and I've had every style of whatever buzz cut could be with whatever re-re style or whatever. And doing that whole phase. Um, but like, you know, my hair was, is like it is now. It's buzzed. Uh, and I'm in Moscow. And like these Russian men are like, why don't you have hair? Like, you know, it's such a big deal, right? Like, what's up with you? Like, why don't you have hair? I remember going down the escalator uh, to the subway and to the metro. And this kid was like, mom, that lady has no hair. <laughs> so loud. I was like, oh, my God. But because maybe they thought I just didn't understand them. But the things that I would hear, because people assume, right, that you don't know what they're saying a lot of the time, right? So, yeah, I, comments about my hair, about my skin color. Of course, I'm I'm mulatka, right, to there. Um, and, you know, about my sexuality. And not even that it wasn't about being queer, right? It was actually sexualizing my body, right? Um, I've never talked so much to people about like also black men's sexuality in that context. They would ask questions about black men and, you know, the size, right? And I'm like, I cannot believe, first of all, I don't even know you at all. Like, but they were comfortable having this conversation with me, um, and they would just be asking these questions like, is it true that black men have big dicks? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I, like, you know, and I, I felt like I was constantly trying to, like, debunk stereotypes. Like, but these stereotypes, like, you know, I mean, obviously, like, they're autonomous, right? They have traveled. Um, and just trying to be like, no not you know black people aren't lazy like just whatever they've seen read or heard like constantly and it is really an emotional labor to do that um but yeah i've never had so many conversations about that it's like very personal stuff <laughs> i think a lot what, what's really important about this conversation is that i wish that there were more people who could do polling like Pew Research, et cetera, because I, I think 
now the field is opening up to the possibility that these things are are actually real and exist. And people say it because I I deal with questions about sexual prowess often. And the men will tell you, we don't want you fucking our girls because you're going to ruin them with your big dicks. Seriously. Like they, they will. And it sounds ridiculous to someone who isn't black and who doesn't go there, but it, it, it's very common. Right. And it, again, it just sounds ridiculous. I also know about how they sexualize black women. And it deals a lot with safety because they look at you all as being accessible, loose, but more directly accessible to them. And as a black man, I don't have to deal with that because I do deal with racism, but because of patriarchy, me being a man prevails. And so there's this chummy conversation that we can have about Ukrainian and Russian women. Mm -hmm. Because if you are a man that goes to this part of the world, everybody wants to fuck a Ukrainian or a Russian woman. And I know this sounds really forward, but it's a very common discussion, just like you're saying people felt comfortable talking to you about this stuff. And they're not really processing your queerness and all these other things as well. Yeah, I think that um, definitely like what you're saying, like, like the black woman's body, I think, is very accessible like and and they see it as such there um in ways that i mean it's it's very close to a fetish right <laughs> like it, it is a fetish right um and it's like oh well you must be you know you must be good in bed you must be good at dancing right and not just dance like not like you know do wop ba bop but it's like you know twerking, twerking. You must be good at twerking. And of course, you know, like, come on, not every black person is also good at twerking. Let's like be real. Like, you know, there's also black people who can't dance. I mean, like, seriously. But then, I don't know, it put me in a very unique like position of like not wanting to like play into that stereotype, even though it's like, yeah, I actually am good at twerking, but like, I can't do it in this space. Like, I feel like I can't let go because then I will like feed your stereotype in some type of way. <laughs> Like, so I I found myself self uh, censoring a lot, a lot. I would go to like in, in Central Asia, I went to a wedding and I just like toned it all the way down. And I, I felt that there was kind of this tense, like, you know, every time I got up to dance, people were like, what is she? What is she doing? <laughs> is she gonna? <laughs> I know that feeling, too. And it's one of those things where if you're dancing, if it's about basketball, any type of athleticism, there's a very specific expectation if you're black. Yeah. Yeah, because most famous athletes in the world are black. So it's a pretty uncomfortable position to be in. And yeah, you're right. You do censor yourself. Yeah. And I, I felt like, 
like then there would be the comments also even about like when you're talking about celebrities like people have yelled cardi b at me i don't look anything like cardi b like you know what i mean like i do you know what i went in my georgian village do you know what the local kids who the local kids thought i was Allen iverson oh my god <laughs> oh my god I bullshit you not. I had I had dreads down to my shoulders. They weren't even braids. They were wow. dreads, and they thought that I was oh Allen Iverson. I bullshit <laughs> you not. Yes, I mean, I it, it's just so interesting. It's like a Cardi B, Beyonce, anyone who's just black. I haven't been called Michelle Obama yet. I would like. I w I was like, okay, I was waiting for that, but like, no, it was not. It was always like, you know, at that point, like. During the the World Cup, I think that's when Cardi B was like coming up. I think you know with Bodak Yellow and stuff, and that song was everywhere in Russia, and so yeah, it was so interesting uh, to experience that. But also there, um, at the same time, you know, again, it, it was uncomfortable because you're just sitting there like, okay, well, I'm trying not to just. I just want to be myself right now, and. I'm not doing that exactly. So we're going to end here and ask you to tune in next week where Alexa talks to me about her research in Kyrgyzstan, being a black queer woman in Central Asia, and a little about how she met her partner, as well as LGBTQ plus life in the region through the lens of a black American queer woman. All right, so now it's time to say thank you. For all my Patreon supporters who are still with me and those who are no longer with me, thank you. I haven't given that platform the attention it deserves and I hope this relaunch is an indication that I'm serious about engaging you. I'm gonna start making uh, the tiers a bit more doable for my bandwidth and my schedule as well as do some special weekly appearances with you all. You should have a message from me about how that's gonna look in your inboxes now. And also, go to your favorite podcast apps and give me a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. The ratings definitely help magnify uh, my podcast. And for those who give me five stars, that's really excellent. It, it really helps a lot, so please do that. Go on your favorite podcast apps, especially iTunes. And you can also tune in to my twice a week Twitter Spaces show, also named Black Diplomats, where I talk about all things foreign policy. There's no set schedule. You'll just have to follow me at Russian underscore star, and that's star with two R's, to learn when I'll be broadcasting a space. And space is a new platform that's offered by Twitter. It's very similar to Clubhouse, where you can hear me engaging other Twitter folks about foreign policy issues of the week and also evergreen stuff. Black Diplomats Podcast comes to you with support from the Outrider Foundation as well as my devoted Patreon supporters. And production of Black Diplomats comes thanks to Mike Hall, my brother from another mother. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. <laughs>